3: Welcome to Food Without Borders. This is a show about food, politics, and identity. I am your host, Sari Kamen. Uh, I am very pleased to have in studio with me today, Chef Jahangir Mehta. He's the owner, the chef, restaurateur at Graffiti, Graffiti Earth, and Me and You Restaurants in New York City, and also the author of Mantra. The rules of indulgence, welcome to the show chef meta
4: I'm very excited
3: thank you so much for being here thank you um, you know so sometimes I have guests in here and I know and I know them and but this is the first time we're meeting, so this is really exciting um, so i've been I've been reading up on you a little bit but i'm I'm looking forward to hearing your story you have you're involved in so many different kind of social impact platforms and enterprises and uh, there's so many different kind of causes. You've been able to use your your occupation as a chef to kind of leverage your your values. It seems like um, first, I'd love to hear a little bit uh, just about your background. I know you, you were raised in Mumbai in India. Correct. Okay, tell us tell us a little about that. Like, what was your childhood like, and and when did you end up um, immigrating to the United States?
4: So uh, I grew up in Bombay, but I am Persian by race, uh, and uh, I'm Zoroastrian. It's a very, very small community. It's the oldest mon- monotheistic religion in the world. And uh, unfortunately, being the oldest, it's also could be the first religion that might die too because it's uh, a ve- uh, we are just about 85,000 left in the world. Yeah. And uh, it's a sad part when you're that few to really go ahead and see that we survive more, especially when our community has, most of our community is over the age of 65.
3: Right. So I'd it, love, I mean, I'd love to talk a little bit more just because I know it's such a, a unique religion and just to talk about the, like the fact that it exists sort of in the, in the diaspora sense, right? Like your family right. being in India and most other, um, Parsi people or Zoroastrian being in Pakistan and the confluence of the different places, um, after, having to leave persia because of reasons of persecution like coming together and creating this really vibrant food culture
4: and uh, and so exactly our food is very different from uh the regular uh, food that most people associate indian food Mm -hmm. to be because it has a very strong base of persian cuisine and uh, also it's very meat heavy which is not the case uh, coming from a country like india yeah so there are all those aspects too and so having said that then moving here to America where there are about close to i think 8 to 10,000 uh, in North America Zoroastrians but uh, can you
3: can you just explain what it is
4: uh, it's just a very uh, it's a community which believes in three major thoughts that's good thoughts good words and good deeds hmm. and uh it's a very simple religion it's a religion that doesn't practice uh Any sort of mourning, it uh, it really it's a religion uh, which mourning uh, in
3: terms of grief, uh,
4: grief. It Mm -hmm. doesn't practice anything like deprivation. It's just about joy and uh, just leading a good life.
3: But Zoroastrians were originally Persians that had to flee Persia because they weren't Muslim. Is that correct? correct?
4: When the Muslim invasion through, uh, they had to leave and uh, landed up mostly in India. And uh, that's where they uh, and most of them, I think, are in pretty much are in Bombay. Mm. And that's where I grew up. And uh, it's very interesting. I was just there about uh, two weeks back. And over here, I have not met anyone with my name uh, pretty much. And most people who meet me say that, oh, this is the first time we've ever heard of a word uh, of your name, Jahangir and I was in Bombay and it was just I mean of course I know that these things exist but it was just weird that I passed um, a gallery which which has been there since I was born or before that I don't know when it came up but this is Jean Girard Gallery then there's a uh, there is another one with the, with the name of uh, with with uh, uh, building with uh, a majestic building with my name, and then there was a street with my name. And I've taken all these videos. I'm like, it's so funny that <laughs> That's so that that in uh, over here in New York, no one's heard my name, and over here in Bombay, it's like so common, it's everywhere. Yeah, <laughs> in was, front that of kind of of, was that kind of
3: was it kind of disconcerting? <laughs>
4: uh, no, I mean I I know it, but it was just like it it just so happened that day <laughs> that when I when I saw every, yeah. all these three in the same day and I was like that's so funny that, that it's not common at, I mean it's it's so was weird was it like
3: oh this is where i'm from like, Yeah, did it feel like a little bit of a homecoming for you yeah that i mean way? though
4: i go there very often but yeah. it was just that it it just that thought came up right. when when i saw these three in the same day that day and yeah. it was just funny
3: yeah i can imagine yeah. um that is funny um so were you exposed to well I guess Parsi cuisine growing up was it like a big part of your your family and
4: correct yeah and uh, I mean that's the cuisine that uh, the food that I was exposed to eating mainly and uh, which I enjoy very much Uh, so what are
3: some of the the hallmarks of the I guess the flavors like the the way that the um I guess Pakistan and India, like the way the different spices have integrated.
4: Uh, I, I'm sure we have changed our cuisine a little bit. Has changed by being in a country like India and and exposed to even and more purchase, spices. It, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. so uh, it's just like how the Portuguese food in India is different. I think it's right. compared to Portuguese food. Yeah. So uh, I think it's the same way. It has. Uh, it did pick up some influences in some parts of the spices part. Uh, part of the way. But there are some very traditional dishes that only our community make, and uh, and one being a dish called dansa, another one which is called patrani machi, which is basically uh, a fish which is cooked in a banana leaf, so it's almost a papio type of way of cooking with uh, a, a coconut and green chili chutney, and uh, and it's a bit spicy. And I I I do think that I think the aspect of chilies and all has come into our cuisine from India maybe this dish is very very traditional but maybe not with the spice as much as we put now so i think those little changes you can see coming from a country being uh, and lived in india and then i guess you basically make the most of it when you have landed as a refugee you take what the land has to offer yeah. and and make and keep your tradition to a certain extent
3: yeah are you involved or aware of any efforts to preserve the cuisine or, or the religion or the way that they um, yeah, we, are both expressed? Yeah, we are very
4: lucky. We uh, uh, In in America, uh, upstate, uh, uh, I mean, and our uh, north uh, from the city, there is a prayer hall that has been built and which is beautiful. Um, so it, people, uh, on an average, uh, the first Sunday of every month, there is a meeting about two to 300 Zoroastrians get together, yeah. have um, have uh, lunch together. Uh, people who have kids get their kids there, so they could just learn a little more about the religion in a in a very fun way. Not like like they go in a religious school to mm-hmm. a great extent, but more to do with learning tradition, learning. Uh, 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 in our community, we go through a, a a prayer almost like a bar mitzvah type of a, a way of going about it, and like a coming of age. Uh, correct, and uh, so that is a very, very important, it's called Navjot, and it is a very important It's uh, function. It's as big as a wedding. Like, I mean, that's how it's it's celebrated. And uh, so, so people who have to go through that, there are children who go through that class to just get to know about the religion better. If they finish that, then they do some other projects about a little more about how our religion came and what the other little history about our religion. So everyone at different ages learn a little bit with the kids, so which is interesting. And they always try and bring in at least one speaker quite often on that one Sunday. So it, And just to talk about, sometimes it's not at all about religion, it's just someone who is very successful. Mm-hmm. Or, um, and I think the two most successful uh, people that uh, a lot of Americans might have heard are Zubin Mehta, the conductor of the Philharmonic. Huh. He, was, uh, he is Zoroastrian, as well as Freddie Mercury was Zoroastrian. What? Yes. <laughs> you,
3: really, he was. Yes, and and raised that way. Yes, that's so, so interesting and right. cool. And, <laughs> and
4: so, uh, uh, so I mean, um, there are many others too. But yeah. uh, but uh, that's those are, I think were and the other company which is very very uh, famous is the Tata consulting which basically sponsors the, the New York City Marathon every year. Oh wow. They are the ones who sponsor the marathon. So they are they are as a restaurant company based in Bombay.
3: I wish that there was I don't, you know, I don't, I don't they need like a better marketing campaign or or something. <laughs> like it's just it's so fascinating and it you know, I hate thinking that it's um it's threatened like just in terms of the preservation of it. So I don't know.
4: I hope it survives.
3: I hope so too. Um, so when did you when did you leave Bombay?
4: I left it in '93, uh, late of '93, and uh, I came directly to go to the Culinary Institute of America mm-hmm. and uh, went to school there um, because I was doing research. I really would have preferred to go to Europe because that's what spoke to me as a country mm-hmm. more. And uh, But from my research, I just felt that the Culinary Institute of America was exactly what I, what I wanted to do in a way. Uh, uh, and the curriculum was speaking exactly to me. Mm-hmm. So that's what we did. Uh, I did, I mean. And uh, I enjoyed my th- the time there extremely. And after that, I've uh, stayed in the city and just worked in the city. Uh, so it's been close to 24 years. And I've been in New York City.
3: Yeah, did you, when you came initially, did you think you were going to stay in the States?
4: For the first six months, no. I absolutely detested it. I think firstly, <gasps> I think I came at the wrong time. I think I came in the heart of winter, yeah. which, and it was a very, very terrible winter, that 94. In fact, the and Culinary that's, Institute... Is at Hyde Park? In Hyde Park. Yeah. And uh, the Culinary Institute, in their whole time of survival, till that time, after that, I don't know if they've ever been closed, but till that time, they had said, they had pride themselves by saying, we've never been closed due to weather. And that year they had closed due to weather one day, so it was really a harsh winter. Yeah, those upstate so I think, winters. I think it was it was that, fueled by other aspects of uh, uh, just like being here was very hard initially. Yeah. But had you
3: been to the United States before? No, I that was hadn't. The first time.
4: It was my first we were time. Like, what is and this
3: weather? <laughs>
4: <laughs> and uh, and uh, the. The closest I'd ever seen snow was, uh, at, uh, like, from a very far distance, seeing yeah. the Malayas from a hill station that I had gone to. But I never, uh, like, that. there was a snowstorm that day. And um, I have very good friends who are here since years. So they picked me up from the airport. And by the time we reached, they live in Connecticut. By the time we reached there, it was another snowstorm. <laughs> and they took me sledding after that. So it was, like... Wow! Like I just landed and now I'm sledding. Yeah. And it, it was it was it was great. It was it was an amazing experience. But uh, it's just something, and I I still remember this asking the statement because I know what heavy rain and light rain looks like, mm-hmm. but I didn't know what light snow and heavy snow look like, yeah. and I still remember <laughs> asking my friend. Is this considered light snow? or Is this heavy snow? Like I I don't know. I I don't know what is that amount that comes down which is considered light or heavy. Heavy. Yeah, I know that is very heavy. (laughs) (laughs) So it was such a foolish question in a way, but I had no idea. That's so sweet, though. I love
3: that. Um, um, So what happened after you graduated? I mean, you have all these restaurants now, but obviously Mm. there was a some time
4: in between. I worked at. Uh, the first time uh one of my first jobs was at Lapsont which uh, which was actually my internship and then I worked at Typhoon Brewery where I met uh Eric who was the pastry chef there and uh, he was leaving to open up uh John George the main John George and he asked me if I would like to be on the team mm. of the so I of course, said yes. Of course,
2: yeah.
4: <laughs> <laughs> and so I joined. When John George
3: calls, <laughs> yeah, I
4: mean, I was very lucky because I still remember we were—we were just two of us who joined. Uh, the ones who had joined earlier, like we joined this uh, this other gentleman and me. He was in the kitchen, and I was in the pa- in pastry. We joined three months prior to John George opening, mm-hmm. and we were the only two people who were not from his original team, like not uh-huh. from Wong, not from JoJo, not from Lipstick Cafe. We were just people who had never worked with John George so we were like so lucky to get in in a very like just like I don't uh, he had also come through someone and I also came through my pastry chef because my pastry chef had opened all these other restaurants anyway for John George and uh, so that's how I started working there and uh, a little over two years later uh, John George asked me to be the pastry chef at Mercer Kitchen so I went there and after that, I left when I uh, 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 worked for uh, Rocco Di Spirito. At, uh, uh, um, and then when Didier opened, uh, uh, who was the chef at John George, he opened a restaurant called Viro. As well as a restaurant later called X, I worked with them. So, and after that, I opened my own place.
3: I I heard you worked at a place called Compass. Yes,
4: and I did work at Compass. For, actually, I worked there for a very short time because of nine eleven, and it was oh, just when I was at Virro, uh, the investors pulled out that same week after nine eleven and said we are closing down the restaurant. They were all guys from Wall Street, and they just wanted to close down the restaurant. So I worked there too. <laughs> Oh, my God.
3: As a waitress I don't, <laughs> in 2003.
4: Was it the same? Time? I, I know no. when it was a time when Marika changed to Compass. I started there. It was a restaurant before was, called Marika.
3: I was a little after you. OK. Um, but it was Chef Katie.
4: No, there was, that really, um, there was a man. Sh- her
3: restaurant was Giraffe, but it closed oh, because Katie. of 9-11. Oh, I didn't know she worked there, too. Not yeah. for very long, I don't think. And okay. I was only there for She was for
4: the one who opened uh, 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 Tavern on the Green.
3: The, oh right! Yeah, when, yes. it, so when she it opened again. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But I just thought that was so funny because I oh was like one of the first, you know, New York restaurants I ever yes. worked in. So
4: I was there for a very short time. It was literally between jobs because Vero closed down, and then I was just there and and I was very lucky they needed someone and because they were changing it from this restaurant called Marika into Compass in two days they made that change I'd never seen that happen
3: Mm -hmm. that's really strange yeah they
4: they did it overnight literally like they closed (gasps) it on Saturday and Monday or something or Tuesday we were open as a new restaurant (laughs) under the same management and everything got changed that's really crazy it was fun
3: yeah um so so what was the like the initial kind of concept for graffiti uh Initially, the main thing was I wanted to have a small
4: place because just from what I had seen, uh, the problems of restaurants were why they closed down or what it was. The main thing was because of rent, because you can't change something. Some are fixed costs in life. There's rent, there's electricity, there is all of that. So I just felt let me get a small space because that will make it More efficient, and 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 almost a surety that I might not ever have to work for anyone else if it's a small space. So that's what was my main goal, and that's how it all started. I wanted to make food which uh, I find pleasing, as well as uh, pick from my background. And my background mainly was pastry. Mm. So my thoughts always go in that direction. I mean, that's how my brain is almost tuned. If I have to make anything different, it would first go to oh what would what could I what would have it done if I had to cook this dish and I would say oh what would go better like I mean yeah maybe apples and cinnamon go very well with it's sweet it would go well with pork and I mean so it would always go back to that pastry aspect in a in a way that so I would say that is my type of food then the aspect of being Persian it's a very different cuisine bringing that in roping those flavors in and and I, the reason I called it graffiti is because graffiti is an art form and it is uh, someone's signature and you don't copy someone. I mean, technically, you don't copy someone's signature. And uh, so I wanted to showcase my art on a plate. And that's why I called it graffiti. Um, so that's where it started. Then we have opened Me and You, which is... Uh, a private dining where we do dinners, whatever you wish to eat. It is memory-driven food. We send you a questionnaire and according to how you answer is how we cook for you. So it's very personalized. It's pretty much uh, a story for every course. Uh, it, we ask you your likes, your dislikes, your things you like to eat, things you, uh, you find fun. Uh, we ask you about your favorite movies, your books, your we ask you off-the-color questions like light or dark, top or bottom, uh, things like that, just to figure, almost sense you who the person you are. And once we get that feeling is when we basically draft out a menu. And uh, according to that's that...
3: That's so evocative. Thank
4: <laughs> you. I mean, that's so interesting
3: and personal and cool and weird. And like, then do people... Like just show up and then you've prepared this food. No, and so,
4: so basically it's only one party at a time. So we... Well, only, I'm sorry. I mean yeah. like the
3: one party. Yeah. But do they so know
4: what they're going to be eating? They do. I mean, no, they don't know at all. It's, <sighs> so we reiterate the story when we are putting it down. We would say the reason why we did this was because, like yourself, you're from Canada. And that's why we used maple in this dish. And, and but you said that when you came to America, the first place that you went was to a hot dog stand. So that's why we used the casing of the hot dog to put the pork in or whatever it might be. It could be different things of why we made that dish happen, taking influences from who you are, from what you do, from how you portray yourself, what the type of job you have. And and the more questions and the more things you answer is how we can write the story better. That's like the coolest so, thing I've ever heard. And we also use a lot of sensory aspects like music, touch, feel. Uh, we do platings on... Uh, on hands we uh we we use music as a different derivative we do uh we do smells and aromas as like i mean if you have said that i love for instance um uh, time and next thing we'll know is we'll be giving you a time massage on your hand and, and giving you that feeling of time really seeping into your skin and then showcasing Maybe a timepanoquera with uh, with some uh, with with some fish or whatever it might be. But the point is, we try to get you into that mood, into yeah. that. And we play music which is appropriate to that course. So if you are serving a Spanish course, it would be Spanish music. If it is uh, some, if you had said it was fun, we might play salsa. It might, if you had said it was a color that you enjoyed, it would be say if it was pink, then we would we would see to that our plates for one of the courses is pink. We might play Pink as the artist, (laughs) the music. It could be anything where it finally gets you into thinking why Pink was written by you and how we translated Pink onto that course. So it could be It's almost like having
3: a dream, but like through food, and you learn the story about yourself that you maybe didn't know. And, and we, then I love that that could sort of like inspire nostalgia that you didn't even know existed.
4: Correct. And we also try to, uh, I mean, we do that with a lot of companies. So uh, companies, uh, people tell us their vision in their company, people tell us their uh, their goal of their companies, and we translate those goals, their visions, their mission statements, ideation into food. Hmm. So, I mean, it could be anyone. We've done it for cat food companies. We've done it for perfume companies. We've done it with, with, <laughs> uh, with consulting companies to a yeah. great extent, law firms, uh, where they've given us uh, some sort of uh, uh, a case they are fighting on. It could be anything. They've told us little information, and then we translate that.
3: How much of your food that you cook at Graffiti and Graffiti Earth is your own story? Uh, I
4: think Graffiti Earth is to a great extent. I mean, it's all about sustainability. And that is pretty much it was a way of life. I think you didn't. In fact, it's so funny that just as you say it, uh, just the other day, my uh, mom said that, oh, this, uh, uh, this guy, the scrap guy who normally comes and collects everything from you. Like in India, they come to your house and they pay you for everything like literally when i was growing up anything this plastic glass if it was broken if it was a plastic if, if it was a pen that was broken they'll buy everything any scrap they buy there is a price associated every day it's like the stock market there's a price to the paper so they would say oh today the paper price is a dollar for a kilo. Tomorrow it might be a dollar three cents. Five days later it might be 50 cents. It might be, so the dollar, the price of paper which they're going to buy back from you changes by the kilo.
3: What do they do uh, with it?
4: They recycle. Everything is recycled.
3: Oh, so you get money when you so, bring so, stuff to the recycling center. Center, yeah. but
4: basically you don't have to go. The guy comes to your house and he just shouts on the bottom of the street. And that, you get
3: paid for it? And
4: we get paid for it. That's that guy comes, collects everything and goes. But what it's a win-win funny.
3: situation.
4: Yes, but that's all I knew till this, this time when I went. About two weeks ago, uh, 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 mom said that, oh, he stopped collecting plastic anymore. So I was like, why? So he says, oh, he says it takes too much space. And he's making more money on paper. So he doesn't want to collect plastic anymore. Ah. So we have to find another guy who does plastic now. Mm. So and it was like so weird. Like, I mean, wow, we are getting like we did this years ago that's all I knew that they yeah. I mean I'm telling you broken pens is what they would take they would take I still remember you know one thing that they did which was fantastic was from your pills you know how you get that yeah. th- that aluminum or whatever that material is in from which you remove a pill they would take all that so yeah. we would always collect all the pill uh, oh, because my dad uh, uh went through a quadruple bypass, so he takes almost five or six pills a day. So, so he we really get a lot of that strips left over, and my mom would collect that, and that guy would.
3: Yeah. So would, you really got in the habit of saving, saving every, everything. saving and preserving
4: everything. And um, and it was and, and my mom said no, they don't take this anymore, and I was like, that's so sad that we were so ahead of the game, and now we are going into this problem which all these first world countries did by not recycling. And we did it. And now we are going away from it, which is really sad.
3: Yeah, but I love that it was just so ingrained in you that that's that's the way you approach every single dish and the way you think about food and sustainability. And I'd love to hear you just talk about that a little bit more because I know you've been really innovative in the way that you've been so resourceful. Yeah, I mean,
4: uh, one of the things that we did, I mean, we translated it differently. I mean, uh, one thing that in... uh, Whenever any clothes or anything would tear, either like if they were, they could be given to someone. Of course, they would be. But if they really tore, my mom always cut them up and made rags with it. I mean, we never grew up with uh, bounty table, uh, bounty towels in the kitchen. It was always rags like this, which you could just throw away, by, and use those rags, and and they would be in this big bin, cut up into some like two three inches. And kept there so every time you need something to be cleaned off, that is what you did. So, again, it got used somehow or the other. And uh, uh, so, we use the scraps of uh, scrap materials and make napkins out of it at the restaurant here. So, uh, our napkins are just about like anywhere from about six to eight inches of material that is going to be thrown away. So, that is something again we are saving um all our plates cutlery crockery is our hand-me-downs mm. so if anyone wants to give away something when they're moving yeah. feel free to give it to us because we would use it <laughs> and uh, uh and and a lot of guests do come and have given us things as presents so we're very lucky that they when they hear the story they'll say hey i do have this so yeah. i mean, like we'll take it and uh so that's really great um, in terms of artwork, we have, uh, we've worked with an artist called Shreya, and uh, we've sold, I think, about four, if I'm not mistaken, of her, uh, of her art when we did one large party for her. But after that, I think we've, uh, I think three at that party and then one during the course of the year. And uh, basically, uh, her art sells for anywhere around 5000 but she gives away 90, uh, a little over 90% to charity. And uh, so, again, we like to work with artists like that. We, uh, in terms of sustainability and food is concerned, we uh, buy a lot uh, uh, of things which are, as we call it, uh, cosmetically challenged produce. Mm. And uh, we get it even from the Chef's Garden in Ohio, where I was just uh, uh, for three days just till yesterday. Um, uh, Then uh, we are very lucky that we've had partnerships with people in the city for instance, uh, Amanda Cohen from yeah. Dirt Candy gives us all her broccoli, which she doesn't oh, use from great. her broccoli yeah. dog, as well as some gifts always, which come along with it. <laughs> and we love Amanda. Uh, she, yeah. uh, she's been very, very vocal about, giving, uh, uh, about telling this and then seeing to it that it's being used by someone who wants to use it like us. So we've been very lucky with her. We've been using, the uh, I don't know if you've heard of Birch Coffee. Mm-hmm. We use their leftover espresso. We cold steep it after they've used it, that is. We take that from them. We cold steep it and make ice cream with it. We're going to be using uh, pastries which are left over from them. And we are going to uh, make some sort of a bar that we can give back to them for them to sell. Um, uh, juice companies where we are taking the, the raw aspect of the ju- uh, the leftover juice pulp and making chutneys with that from the farmers market from time and time again we get presents from these farmers so there it's it's really really great that we are managing little by little to have a the next connection
3: yeah i just love how it's like that. second nature for you and i hope more chefs are, are looking to you for for ways to be so
4: yeah and i've been very lucky as well <laughs> as uh i think uh, my uh, my job at university of massachusetts in amherst where they are extremely uh, proactive about this. Uh, I run the sustainability program for the Blue Hall over there, and where it feeds about about four to five thousand students. And over there, we've made huge changes. A couple where we have figured out that, like the as we call it, our compost soup, which we also have at our restaurant, which is scraps of all the vegetables that are left over from the day. We make that as our vegetable stock and then make soup from it. Hmm. And at uh, the university, our food cost from 28% came down to 12% on that we soup. You can't argue with that. So, so, it's, so you can just see that it not only is just for the reason of doing, because I believe in it, but it also cuts on your bottom sense. line. So it's things like that, which we have seen little by little, and we want to take it to a larger extent and, and make it even more pronounced. over there which is amazing
3: it is we're going to take a quick break and then we'll be back to talk for a few more minutes
4: great thank you thank you
3: Hey, you're listening to Food Without Borders on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sari Kamen, and I've been in studio talking with Jahangir Mehta. He's the chef of graffiti and Graffiti Earth and Me and You, which is a, a very unique dining experience, as we heard. Um, and we've been hearing a lot about Chef Mehta's upbringing uh, in Bombay and how sustainability was just sort of a, an organic, natural part of his life and how he's been able to translate that in his restaurants. Um, I read this, I don't know, I don't a story I guess about you um, at your restaurant graffiti, and we talk a lot about like politics and immigration on the show, as you know, right. um, and you use uh, found objects and you use you know unconventional objects in very sort of like resourceful ways, and you were using these newspapers as placemats at graffiti, and the newspapers were in Urdu, the language, and you had a customer kind of freak out on you and accuse you of harboring terrorists is that am i getting that right
4: correct i mean we use newspapers chinese newspapers yeah, like japanese anything you newspapers can find. korean newspapers from our uh, purveyors basically yeah. and uh, this came uh, a couple of these came from uh, uh, some of the uh, spices that we bought from and uh, so we were using those. I mean, I just thought it very when was cool. This? this was literally in my first year that we opened graffiti. Wow. And of course, it's a very scary period in your first year because yeah. you're not sure. I hope your restaurant survives. And, and you
3: hadn't been living in America that long at this point either. I no, I, I was. I mean, I'd spent a good
4: twelve, fifteen, twelve oh, okay. years. Yeah, by the time. But uh, uh, but the point was just that. It's the first time I'm using, I've started my restaurant and I don't want to deal with any unnecessary trauma at that time. And this person went ballistic because I had these uh, Urdu newspapers and and, uh, pretty much in that Aspect of accusing me of harboring terrorists what? because of reading of, of having a newspaper which I can't even read right. that language, yeah. Yeah, which yeah, I mean, is it's very funny. And if
3: you were harboring yeah. terrorists, you probably wouldn't advertise it on your <laughs> placemat. And
4: and I just <laughs> felt like it's very strange having a newspaper would be. What had that got to do with? Uh, it's I, so I, I just did But as my mom has always said, is you can only rational people who are open to listening. Mm. If you're not open to listening, you cannot basically do anything. Yeah. And uh, and that was the case. It is really sad that uh, that's how uh, life is. And I I I know in some ways I feel like I hope I had stood up to it and said that that's how did you handle it? I did it in a little, I would say, in some ways, like a coward, where I just removed them, and I never used them again. You removed
3: the placemats uh, instead mean, of removing I, the person.
4: I just, at that point, I will, I mean, I did tell him that, see, that's not the case, but if you feel that way, and we just removed them mm-hmm. off. And quite honestly, as I and I do mention that uh, uh, as a coward, because I never used them after that, mm-hmm. and... Uh, uh, Yes, in some ways, I'm very shameful that I did that just because one person said that. But uh, on the other hand, I just felt like if that is how one person feels, maybe some other people do feel that way. And I just didn't want to confront it for the reason of confronting people who know me, know me, who I am. And if this is one aspect of making maybe maybe making some people uncomfortable, That's not what I want it to be. I want this place to be a place for anyone to come. And if that was the case, and I don't think a person who spoke Urdu would be offended if I didn't use that newspaper either. So I just felt it was not worth a fight. I mean, I think uh, sometimes you have to realize what's worth a fight and what's not. And I just felt like you don't reason with someone who is quite stupid, who doesn't want to listen to an educated uh, conversation. And... So in that format, I do feel, as I will be very open to say, that I wish in some ways I had just not and kept to my guns and used it.
3: Yeah. Yeah, I understand the conflict there. I mean, what do you think you would do if that happened again? I mean, especially, like, right now in the context of, like, all the anti-immigration kind of sentiment that's been floating around. I think
4: today I would use it even more. Mm -hmm. I I think I I was... uh, It was very... My restaurant was so new at that time. I. I I I just felt anything and everything could close it down by mistake of some some little thing here and there. I think I feel more comfortable that I think I can brace that a little more so I think that fight I can handle better. Yeah. But I think now I would do it even more because it's a point to be brought back to society that that's not how we all feel. You might be a community you might be, you're a small type of people who do feel that way. And it's just like just like how people don't like certain religions thinking that they promote terrorism is because there are some people in those religions who do do that, but that doesn't mean the majority of that religion believes in that either. And, uh, and there are good and bad people in every religion. There are good and bad people in your own family. So you choose to be with who you choose to be. And uh, I would... Definitely see to it that I would, I, I would fight back. Yeah, I definitely feel that I can do it now. Well, I even hope that more. doesn't happen again. I hope so, it doesn't happen. Yeah. And do I, you
3: do you have any concerns at this point? Like just being, you know, from India, and I don't know. No. Like, do you feel disillusioned anyway? I know you had to confront that so long ago, but
4: no. Somehow, I I've been I I, as I have always said that I'm I'm extremely extremely thankful to this country. I think they're one of the best people in the world. I think Americans are and me myself now too mm-hmm. but uh, uh since years but I think they are the uh, they are the most forgiving they are the most uh, sweet human beings on the planet. You still feel that way? I still feel that way. It's so way.
3: interesting cuz whenever I have guests on this show like you know who have come from somewhere else they who live in New York City you know have have said a, a similar thing that they still feel very hopeful and optimistic and proud but I think it feels different from the American perspective having grown up here that we're just you know, people who obviously are anti-Trump and anti that administration are so disappointed in America.
4: Yeah, I I completely get it. I think I think you guys are more disappointed. Mm-hmm, just so. like it, just like when nine eleven happened, it is not a great thing at all. I'm not trying to say that in one bit. Please don't take me wrong. But the thing is, I think coming from countries where terrorism was a part of life.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: You get jaded a little bit and you just say, okay, there was another bomb today or there was another big thing that happened today. Or, I mean, 9-11 was humongous, but what I mean to say is, same here, when things like this are spoken by a president, you've heard these things spoken by the government yeah. before. And that was the main thing, which I think this country never promoted hatred from the top. Right. There was hatred, there is always hatred in your community, there's hatred in your Uh, among people there is jealousy among people that's life but it is not promoted by the top management and in any form in america and that is what i loved about it unfortunately that is not what i see today and um or tolerated by people or uh, and and i think it it has given a platform to human beings who are doing this that oh it is correct to behave this way which is definitely not correct. And I think that is one thing that we have to harbor every day and say that this is not normal behavior. We have to oppose it, and we have to see to it that it is opposed. But I still, still, with all bads, whatever the bad is, I still think this is the best country, and this is an amazing country, and mm. it has amazing people. I think, for me, this, there is no other type and no other community and know other people who are as good as Americans.
3: Wow. Well, I'll try and absorb some of that optimism. And it, it's so meaningful to hear you speak to that point. Um, why don't you tell everyone who's who's been listening where we can come to Graffiti, come and find you, come to have a, an amazing sensorial experience at me and you.
4: Thank you. So uh, Graffiti Earth is in Tribeca. So please stop by. Um, we are on 190 Church. And uh, we are open five days a week, closed on Sunday and Mondays. And me and you is open every day. It's uh, it's it's uh, open every day or it's closed every day. It doesn't. <laughs> the point is, it is open when you tell us. And uh, that's okay. it Breakfast, lunch, It's just lunch, really none din- of your business, really. <laughs> yeah. Bre- breakfast, lunch, supper. Uh, we've done overnight things for wow. uh, for guests. We've taken out the table and put a on bed. Once uh, we'll do anything. Color the <laughs> uh, color the restaurant the color that you wish. We will make dream happen we'll write a story for you and that is what we do so cool so please definitely stop by and make it your home
3: okay chef meta thank you it's been an absolute joy and privilege to to meet you today and have you come on the show and tell us your your incredible stories and thank you so much thanks Um, thanks everyone of course for listening we're changing to seven o'clock next week so that'll be our new time slot but still wednesday nights and you can always find us online at www.heritageradionetwork.org
4: Thank you.
2: Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter.